Section 13 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 13. Austria. The history of that portion of Europe which is now ruled by the House of Habsburg and spoken of as the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or sometimes less correctly as the Austrian Empire, contains in its record of shifting events much too complicated and rendered difficult the study and presentation of a unified national development. This country, like France, Spain, Portugal, Prussia and Russia, has grown by accretions of territory, but the new additions have been less well amalgamated by the Habsburgs. Especially is this true in contrast with the first three mentioned countries, where almost immediately the new lands became French, Spanish or Portuguese in spirit and character. Great diversity in race, language, religion, habits, interests among the various elements included within the Austro-Hungarian limits makes it inconvenient to treat this territory as if it were a single nation. Furthermore, large portions of the empire have been gained and lost from time to time by the Austrian house, gained and lost and finally reincorporated without the fluctuation having any significance at all commensurate with his outward titular changes. At times the same sovereign has ruled over Hungary, Bohemia and Austria. At other times different members of the Habsburg family had divided the larger patrimony. At times Hungary and Bohemia or minor districts have been ruled by sovereigns of other dynasties, while the extension of a male line may have reinstated Habsburg by inheritance, marriage or election. For these various reasons it will be simpler to confine the analysis of Austrian political and economic welfare as far as possible to the geographical area generally known as Austria proper. That is, Upper and Lower Austria together with their closely lying southern districts, Sturia, Carinthia, Carniolia, and the Tyrol. These form a very large, well-defined and continuous region, the fortunes of which, both geographically and politically, may be satisfactorily followed, analyzed and tabulated. All these possessions came to the Habsburgs as early as the 14th century and remained under the guidance of their descendants ever since. First and foremost among the progenitors of this August dynasty stands Rudolf the Emperor, 1276-1291, whose single-handed effort raised his family from obscurity to consequence and laid the real foundation for the Austrian growth. Rudolf was chosen emperor not on account of his wealth and power, but for the very reason that he lacked the resources which might make him dangerous in the eyes of the electors. Just as Dukai Capet was raised to the French throne when competition for that position was at its lowest, and no one thought the crown worth the taking, so the Patriarch of the Habsburgs acquired a title that for twenty years had been as valueless as it was high-sounding. Rudolf, like Hugh, took a bankrupt business, reorganized and rehabilitated it. Although the Holy Roman Empire was never to be again what it was in the Middle Ages, the activities of Rudolf prevented a complete abandonment of the ideas and traditions which had for so long clung about this venerable institution. The period known as the Great Interregum, and the meaningless incumbencies of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, and Alfonso, King of Castile, had reduced the imperial dignity to a shadow. Rudolf directed his attention far more towards internal affairs than to the larger questions of empire. His great merit was that of an administrator, a ruthless suppressor of rebellion and anarchy. In addition to this, his fame had been chiefly enhanced through the successful series of wars which he carried forward. 
and all these wars added very materially to the total area of territory which henceforth became incorporated more or less closely under the dominion of austria proper rudolph was a man of gigantic physical proportions seven feet tall and weary of muscle and adamantine of will he had a great sense of justice a practical wisdom and was greatly beloved by the people over whom he ruled of the type of the beneficent despot he is typical of a large class of early sovereigns rudolph died in twelve ninety one and the history of austria for the next two hundred years is not particularly important the general growth of austria during these centuries if not conspicuous was nevertheless credible and there were not more than two or three periods brief in duration when forces of retrogression mastered the slowly moving train of progress the work of rudolph was continued under his son albert elizabeth emperor in twelve ninety eight who inherited a full share of the vigour ambition and ability of his father although mixed up in the affairs of the empire and dominated by efforts to strengthen that had disorganised institution he did not neglect the ever-pressing exigency the prime need during those ages the quelling of lawless barons the punishment of robber knights and the protection of the weak against the strong in a word the maintenance of good governance between albert i the emperor and albert the second the wise lie twenty-two years of doubtful tendency under the joint rule of the mediocre dukes frederick and leopold elder sons of albert i and then again from thirteen thirty to thirteen fifty nine came a return to the positive conditions of the earlier reigns there were territorial gains and judicial improvements of some importance during this period the two youngest sons of albert i grandsons of rudolph the Fowler, now divided the government also the youngest is historically obscure but albert seems to have been the one on whom the mantle of the father and grandsire fell he was called the wise able as a soldier and political organizer learned for the times had the same magnanimity and sense of justice that characterized his grandfather in such a high degree he was altogether a man useful to the best interests of his country an important person in the long and gradual process of family aggrandizement albert's reign was followed by another progressive period under rudolph the fourth which though brief in duration contains many events of importance in the development of the country chief among these may be mentioned the acquisition of the Tyrol, an event directly traceable to the personal negotiation of rudolph the fourth a youthful and ambitious sovereign whose picturesque activities leave a lasting impression rudolph the fourth appreciated that on the death of the widowed margaret maltasque without direct heirs the Tyrol might revert to the house of bavaria therefore seizing the psychological moment he crossed the alps in the winter of thirteen sixty three paid a visit to margaret and by adroit persuasion forestalled the bavarian claims and got immediate control including margaret to renounce the burdens of government in exchange for the carefree pleasures at the court of vienna margaret returned to the austrian capital and the Tyrol since that time remained among the hereditary possessions of the habsburgs rudolph then turned his attention to home affairs and here he also succeeded in gaining practical results he increased his income by levying taxes on wine and beer at the same time the regulations were promulgated favourable to other lines of trade and manufacture especially more productive and economic in value the public revenue was spent in useful directions and his name is memorable as a builder of the great cathedral of st stephen and as founder of the university of vienna modelled after the university of paris which were called distinguished men of learning from various parts of europe rule the fourth came to the throne when only nineteen years of age and died before 
he was twenty-six. Considering the maturity of his ideas, the soundness of his judgment, and the breadth of his plan, it seems fair to suppose that if Rudolf the Fourth had lived, he would have equalled in name his namesake, the celebrated founder of the dynasty, and perhaps have risen even to the eminence of Frederick the Great or Peter of Russia. Thirty years of doubtful value, thirteen sixty-five to thirteen ninety-five, followed his death. The younger brothers Albert and Leopold jointly held the government until thirteen seventy-six, when division was made. Albert keeping Austria and allowing Styria, Carinthia, and the title to go to Leopold. Both the brothers, though differing in character, belonged to the uninteresting Carlos middle grade. Albert the patient and William de Frundlich followed, thirteen ninety-five to fourteen ninety-six. The name remarks applied to them to their period. From 1406 to 1411 occurred a distinct relapse in the conditions of anarchy. This cannot be attributed to lack of ability on the part of the sovereign power, since one of the two brothers who governed at this time, Ernest called Iron, was from all accounts a superior person intellectually, and his appellation referred to his own will. Ernest and Leopold were appointed joint regents until their nephew, Albert, should come of age. Both the uncles used every effort to enrich themselves at the general expense and divided the country in a civil war. Though this weak reign is not connected with rick royal mentality, the behaviour of these two princes gives a clue to the events of the reign. The nation suffered bitterly between the savage rivalry of the uncles and laws depredations of the barons, who, together with the robber knights and banditti, completed the devastation of the land. These conditions were reversed under Albert V, 1411 to 1439, a period of notable progress set in. The credit for all this good work is unhesitantly given to Albert by all Austrian historians, who unite in praising a prince, whom even the Bohemian chronicler admits was good for a German. This Albert, the magnanimous, as he is called, also rendered an important service to Christian Europe by checking for a time the then rising wave of Muslim conquest and defending the frontier kingdom of Hungary against the Turks. Albert was elected emperor shortly before his death, his elevation and his marriage with Elizabeth, Iris of Hungary and Bohemia, contributed, of course, in so far as those events had importance, that much towards increasing the prestige of the Habsburgs and focusing attention upon Austria proper. The people lamented Albert's death and feared for the future. There were two daughters but no direct male heir. The queen was, however, pregnant, for which reason all three countries, Austria, Hungary and Bohemia, deferred the question of sovereignty until the expected birth. This proving to be a male, the infant Ladislaus, called in history the Posthumus, was recognised as heir by the Austrians and Bohemians, and the three nations were in theory united, though actually the entire period is characterised by national and personal rivalries, intrigues, and interesting wars. Hungary became divided on the question of accepting Ladislaus as king. The Austrian party failed to make valid its claim in the kingdom, and Hungarian affairs came under the control of the artwork's famous John Hunyadi. In the wars against the Turks, this great general won long remembered glory, though the Christians did not do more than hold their own against the suggestions of Murad II. This itself was an achievement for which Western Europe had good reason to feel grateful. Austrian affairs continued to ferment during the reign of Ladislaus the Posthumous. There was no settled government. The king himself, a weak and unpromising youth, died in 1457 before reaching maturity. 
The part played by Austria proper in this urgent defence of Christendom was at that time inconspicuous. No great change came about for fully half a century. The disputes between the brothers Frederick and Albert occupied seven uninteresting years. A more firm and enterprising prince than Frederick might have secured control of the three countries, Austria, Hungary, and Bohemia. The circumstances then seemed propitious. As it was, affairs dragged along without much significance, backward of anything in that movement under the divided supervision of the two brothers. There was little change under Frederick's own control when from 1463 to 1493 he reigned as Roman Emperor and Archduke of Austria, Frederick III. During this period the Turks made frightful inroads under the great Mohammed II, and to troubles from this quarter were added greater troubles arising nearer home. Matthias Corvinus, King of Hungary, had a grievance to avenge. Before questions were adjusted, the Austrians found themselves no longer masters of their own capital. The Hungarians were on every side victorious, and it was only through promise of a large sum payment that the conquered territory was allowed to retrocede to its former owners. The internal administration of Frederick III was weak, and he was unable successfully to manage either his own territory or the larger affairs of empire. Yet there was one important achievement which enhanced the power and prestige of Austria. Frederick III worked in a slow, persistent way, always with an eye to benefiting his own family and private interests. He succeeded in procuring for his only son, Maximilian, the richest heiress in Europe, Mary of Burgundy, daughter of Charles of Old. She was the last representative of the Burgundian line, and inherited then enormously rich low countries. The bringing about of this marriage, viewed in light of its subsequent importance, may well be considered counterbalanced to the internal commotions which marked the reign. Possessed of no genius whatever, but endowed with extraordinary tenacity of purpose, Frederick knew how to, to wait, and also how to outlive all his neighbours and all his enemies. It was thus he was able laboriously to unite the whole of the territories to the House of Habsburg, and to secure to his own line the almost unbroken succession to the imperial crown. There is much to be said on both sides of the question, if one is to form any estimate of the personal characteristics of the reign of Frederick III, for it belongs in that borderline between true superiority and a larger group of the moderately endowed. Rank gives a succinct, summarised judgment worth quoting here in full. His regality bordered on avarice, his slowness on inertness, his stubbornness on the most determined selfishness, yet these faults were rescued from vulgarity by high qualities. He had at bottom a sober depth of judgment, a sedate and inflexible honour. The aged prince, even when a figurative imploring succour, had a personal bearing which never allowed the majesty of the empire to sink. In speaking of the general condition of his reign, Hank says, we see the reign of Frederick III as by no means an insignificant, as is commonly believed. His latter years, especially so full of difficulties and reverses, were rich in great results. The House of Habsburgs, by the acquisition of Austria and the Netherlands, had acquired a high rank in Europe. The internecine wars of Germany were almost entirely suppressed. The Suspian League gave to the House of Austria a legitimate influence in Germany, such as it had not possessed since the time of Albert I. If the period and personality of Frederick III are of dubious merit, the same cannot be said of Maximilian I. From this time begins the real greatness of Austria and her entrance into the Congress of the Powers. This came through matrimonial alliances more than the fortunes of war. The chief military exploits occurred in foreign lands, and while the desultory and Iraq campaigns do not, as a whole, spell success, they do not appear detrimental to Austria, except as they 
abstracted large sums of money from that country. Maximilian lent important aid towards establishing the Bavarian secession, for which he demanded and received a number of valuable cities and minor districts. Kufstein, Geroldsek, Neuburg on the Inn, Kirchberg in Subia, the Lordships of Rottenburg, Kitzbühel, and Wiesenhorn, and the Langevate of Alsace. He had already added the counties of Gorica, Mitterberg, and Pastrothal, and afterwards gained some increased jurisdiction on the Adriatic. Thus, from the territorial aspect, this reign was progressive. It was also extremely so from the more important standpoint of eternal administration. Beneficial reforms took place in all ways, leading to the better establishment of authority and peaceful jurisdiction. Maximilian was an autocrat, a brilliant persuasive, and a knowledge leader. Such results as there were, both for good and or evil, came directly from him. His talent for organization cannot be doubted. It is clear to be seen in all of those reforms associated with military affairs, and particularly military technique. He formed the first standing army in Austria, in the improvement of the then primitive art of gun and cannon construction and the manufacture of powder. He was considered one of the leading authorities of his day. In diplomacy, he was too impulsive to succeed well, but in one regard his external policy led to the most important results. Maximilian had a great deal to do with arranging the marriages of his offspring, and it is well recognised that these marriages enormously raised the power and prestige of the Habsburgs. Maximilian brought about the marriage of his only son, Philip de Joanna, IRS of the great Spanish possessions. He arranged the marriages of his grandchildren, Mary and Leopold, each in a way to bring afterwards into his family the kingdoms of Hungary and Bohemia, although the fortunes of these countries must be considered independently, and not as additions to the Empire of Austria. The fact that Austria was the home territory naturally raised that country in prestige and rendered it the sinosure of attention, which is held in the eyes of Europe for many years to come. Charles V succeeded Maximilian, but his reign is not important owing to his brevity. Within two years of settlement of the West Habsburg possessions gave Charles the Low Countries, Spain, Naples, Sicily and the Indies, while the younger brother Ferdinand received the Austrian estates including Carinthia, Carniola and Styria. Ferdinand I, 1521-1564, was prudent, learned, amiable, and well-intentioned, and withal a man of wisdom. He was especially noted for his many virtues, and his reign of 43 years. Everything considered gave satisfaction to the majority of his subjects. In the foreign domestic wars, success about balanced failure. There were territorial additions to offset territorial losses. The army improved while the finances declined though an important act was passed to regulate the value of coinage. It was a period full of more than usual difficulties owing to the confusion of the Reformation. In the reign of Ferdinand I does not stand out as one of importance or glory, but it is at least of considerable merit that the disruptive forces of the time were not allowed to take a headlong course, and the morality and moderation earned a fair success. The reign of Maximilian II, 1564-1576, appears to have been more successful than his predecessors, at least if we are attempting to judge purely materialistic conditions. In the great religious questions of the time, Maximilian II steered a middle course. In this way, he naturally gave satisfaction to neither party, was criticised for his lack of firmness, and, as it turned out, he only delayed the final settlement. But if the actual conditions of his reign be alone considered, these years of recuperative strength spent in the enjoyment of profound peace 
must be accepted as plus in their virtue, and they also call forth, at least, a passing comment on their significance in relation to the great idealistic movement. It was a time when religious controversies filled all men's minds, when the age of the Reformation was in full swing all over Europe, and yet twelve years of peace and religious quiet had been found in Austria, reflecting perfectly the characteristics of a sovereign described by all as moderate and peace-loving in his nature. These conditions did not continue after Maximilian's death in 1576. The whole character of affairs changed. The government became weak and corrupt. Religious disputes were not the only source of trouble. To these were added political and economic difficulties, party intrigues, and a peasant's war. Rudolf II was a markedly weak ruler, indolent, self-indulgent, and finally a drunkard, subject to periods of melancholia. He resigned in 1611, but his brother, Matthias, 1612 to 1619, who had intrigued for the throne, though ambitious in spirit, proved no better as a sovereign. His abilities were mediocre, and increasing years only brought indifference to affairs of state. The reign of Matthias was a period of distinct decline. Under Ferdinand II, 1619 to 1637, there were a variety of forces at work, the whole presenting a doubtful picture. It was a period of Tilly and Wallenstein, of the famous events of the earlier portions of the Thirty Years' War. Austria barely held her own in the giant struggle. It was not like the reign of Maria Theresa, important in the development of Austria, nor can Ferdinand II be classed among the great of royalty. The reign of Ferdinand III, 1637-1657, gives equal difficulty to the classified of historical events. Internal peace, constitutional progress, and monetary betterment stand against failure in foreign policy, in addition to which must be noted a continuance of the phenomena, depopulation and emigration, which marked the previous reign. Ferdinand III was not himself a remarkable individual. Under Leopold I, 1655-1705, a decided improvement set in. The army was strengthened and gave a good account itself. The peace of Kolowitz closed the Turkish situation greatly to the advantage of Austria. Finances alone showed decline. It cannot be said that Leopold himself was a great sovereign. He was a faithful, hard-working man, remarkable more for his private virtues than his mental abilities. The success of his reign must be ascribed to other sources. Two eminent persons who aided Austria at this time were John Sobieski of Poland and Eugenia Savoy. Joseph I, 1705-1711, was a keen and vigorous personality and stamped his impress on the six years which followed the death of Leopold. The actual management of affairs was much in the hands of the great prince, Eugene Savoy, but no attempt will be made to separate their respective shares of influence. Charles VI, 1711-1740, is also reflected in precisely the opposite way. The latter part of his period is one of the weakest in Austrian history, both internally and externally. The finances were seriously depleted, the army reached a wretched condition. The wars against the Turks brought disgrace to Austria. Demoralization characterized all affairs of state. Industry and commerce received encouragement, and here a credible advance was made. But the reign taken by the large must certainly be adjudged disastrous. When the personal traits of Charles VI are considered, one has difficulty in placing this monarch in any ordinary scale for intellectual gradation. From the fact that he was not really lacking in natural capacity, yet it happened, that the kind of things he chose to learn are little valued in a ruler. He was proficient in music, interested in science, and a patron of the arts, 
at the same time willing enough to work on the more urgent affairs of state. But his mind was incapable of dealing with the large practical question of his time. He did not command respect. Though he founded academies or composed an opera, he could not manage his own household. His intentions were honest, and he was anxious to govern with wisdom and justice. These good qualities were counteracted by narrow jealousy, love of adulation, and obstinacy. He succeeded to his dominions in a high state of power and splendor, and left them in the lowest degradation and weakness. Again, Austria raised herself, this time under the rule of one of the most famous women of history. When Maria Theresa came upon the throne in 1740, the finances were exhausted, the national credit was gone, agriculture was in a bad state, a general helplessness pervaded everything. It seemed as Austria was to be devoured by her enemies, Saxony, Bavaria, Prussia, Spain, and Sardinia. Before Maria Theresa's death, 40 years later, everything was changed. Financial strength was re-established by a rigid economy, coupled with improved taxation. The various portions of the nation were unified. Commerce and agriculture improved. The army was reorganized. The navy began to be a force. In fact, Austria had become a decisive power in the affairs of Europe. Industrial improvement had taken several forms. Skilled foreign artisans were encouraged to immigrate. Technical schools were established. Restrictions concerning trade removed and spinning and weaving increased considerably. A few quotations will give a fair view of the importance of the reign of Maria Theresa and of the characteristics of the Empress herself. On the ascension of Maria Theresa, writes Sommenvelles, the monarchy had neither external influence nor internal vigour. For ability there was no emulation and no encouragement. The state of agriculture was bad, trade miserable, finances badly managed, and credit bad. At her death, she left her successor, a kingdom improved by her many reforms and placed in that rank which its size of fertility and the intelligence of its inhabitants ought always to enable it to maintain. Maria Theresa had certainly greater claims to the title of great than had Catherine of Russia. A woman distinguished for beauty and for a character far surpassing in vigour than of many of her ancestors, Rexall gives a few personal touches as follows. Pleasures in the common acceptation of the term she can scarcely be said to allow herself. She rises at five in summer, six in winter. By ceremonious of her time, she usually dines alone and instantly resumes the consideration of public affairs. Nourishes many narrow and illiberal prejudices unworthy of a great sovereign. Those who judge severely incline to condemn her for too great a propensity to munificence. Little has age dried up or clothe the channels of her liberality. She delights to give, to relieve distress, and to extend assistance to merit. Her talents are confessedly good and much above mediocrity. It is not saying enough merely to assert that she possesses more capacity than her father or her grandfather, Leopold, both of whom were princes of very moderate endowments. Cooks describes her thus. Easy of access to all her subjects, affectionate to her family, kind to her domestics, and undoubtedly charitable, but without ostentation. She combined private economy with public liberality, dignity with condescension, elevation of soul with humility of spirit, and the virtues of domestic life with the virtues which grace a throne. But it must not be concealed that she was subject to the failings of human nature of which the best characters are not exempt. She readily gave ear to spies and informers, encouraged tales of private scandal, and indulged in one formidable curiosity in prying into the secrets of families. Her death, however, was a general loss to the people who adored her. 
her reign is considered as the best and most glorious era of their history and the halcyon days of mary theresa are still proverbial throughout the whole extent of the austrian dominions maria theresa's son joseph the second seventeen eighty seventeen ninety was a strange character built of absurd contradictions he was a man who wished to bring about democratic equality he had sought to do so by autocratic coercion little educated himself he was partial to the encouragement of the sciences and the arts though his ideals seemed prompted by the highest altruisms his method was tainted by duplicity selfishness and vanity personally brave ambitious and eager for military renown he was a very poor general and could not even inspire ordinary respect a mania for reforms of the most sweeping and ill-digested nature characterized his policy austro-hungary was a country unevenly broken up and diversified in races religions languages customs laws and institutions all this was to be obliterated and a unified and centralized nation was to bring about a speedy and ready-made utopia joseph tried to abolish all distinctions of religion language and manners he divided the austrian monarchy into thirteen departments to be governed under a uniform system paying no heed to the natural forces of conservatism or the innumerably diverse habits and ideals of different social classes and ethnic groups such revolutionary reforms shocked and alienated all parties at first the peasantry expecting benefits were on his side but enforced conscription turned even the lower classes against this new absolutism masking in the guise of philanthropy this reign occupied a decade unsuccessful as regards internal administration and inglorious in war and diplomacy the personal eccentricities of joseph the second are everywhere to be seen and to the accidental appearance of this one man may be ascribed the unusual trend of historical events during the last part of this reign austria gained a number of victories over the turks for these successes the country had to thank the veteran marshal Lodon and the duke of coburg but apart from these victories the conditions during the reign of joseph ii are clearly enough the handiwork of the monarch himself the next sovereign leopold ii naturally had a hard task his rule was brief lasting only two years yet time enough elapsed to completely alter the state of affairs which prevailed under joseph ii the whole policy of the nation was reversed the einheitstadt theory was abandoned a return was made to the old forms of government and the church was again looked to for strength and support leopold's reign is so transitory and the conditions of the whole continent of europe became so momentous and threatening at that time owing to the french revolution that opinions naturally vary as to the wisdom of austria's internal policy and diplomatic position one thing is certain that a distinct change was brought about on the death of one sovereign and by the initiative of another and this change was on the whole for the better leopold has shown himself an able administrator during his protracted residence in tuscany and it would have been interesting to have seen how well he would have managed the larger affairs of empire had he lived longer archdeacon cox closes his history of the house of austria with the following passage leopold is known rather as a grand duke of tuscany which country he ruled twenty-five years then as sovereign of the austrian dominions and emperor of germany because he did not move long enough in the elevated sphere to fix the public opinion but if we may judge from effects we cannot withhold great praise from a sovereign who within the short space of a single year relieved the country from foreign war and internal commotion who baffled a great companion which threatened the independence of his house and established a throne which at his ascension was tottering to its very foundations other historians agree that leopold was a clever tactful administrator 
Thus, Austrian successors have been very much bound up with the personal qualities of the Habsburgs. For a long time, their country figured little in European affairs, though often the Caesars of empire sat on the throne of St. Stephen, except for Rudolf the founder. No sovereign of higher mental rank came in the Austrian line until Maximilian I and Charles V, and these rather celebrated rulers do not match up well with Peter of Prussia, Gustavus of Sweden, Frederick the Only, or the Great Elector. The Emperor Charles V, of that matter, was but a short time in control of Austrian affairs. This to his side, Maria Theresa is certainly the most intellectual sovereign among the Habsburgs, from the death of Rudolf to the French Revolution, and it is a fact that under Maria Theresa, the one great national movement took place, the one period when very much is to be said concerning Austria's advance. Because of all this, I am inclined to advance the view that Austria might have figured far more powerfully in European history, and the Holy Roman Empire might have remained for a longer time something more than a figment and a fancy, had there happened to be born more great monarchs among the Habsburgs. End of section 13